on this episode of Skeptico. A show about psychokinesis and science and a show about love. I have an interview coming up in a minute with Lee Black. You may remember that I mentioned her name during my recent interview with Dr. Dean Radin. We were talking about the connection between near-death experiences and psychic abilities and whether there was such a connection. And we were squabbling over the question of whether there really is right and wrong. And I brought up Cheryl Lee because, well, she's a pretty extraordinary person in a number of ways. First, from this kind of supernatural, stranger things kind of way, she can move things with her mind. And she's one of probably only a handful of people in the world who've ever been tested in a laboratory to see whether this stuff is real. And it's real. She can really do it. And the other thing that's extraordinary about Cheryl Lee is she's a survivor of multiple near-death experiences. And we're going to talk about how all that might relate to the bigger picture. So let me start with a clip from Stranger Things. Remember the Netflix series, the kids and the little girl who was MK Ultrad by these evil intelligence agencies in order to develop her psychic powers? Here's a couple of really short clips of her doing kind of this psychic stuff. They're really short. Well, superpowers. Okay, so that's Netflix, that's Hollywood, and here's the real deal. Here's Cheryl Lee Black from the upcoming interview. Because your feelings, if they got real intense, could cause stranger things kind of stuff. Lights going on and off, you know, people feeling it, that kind of stuff, right? That's what you're experiencing. Yeah, that you know, that you could scare people with it. I mean, even just spinning the wheel into the pinwheel, I've had lots of people in my family who've seen it and said, Oh, that's really creepy. And they, you know, like they don't say, Oh, that's really interesting and cool. They look at it and go, that's really creepy. Stop it. Tell the story about when you were a kid in school. I hate that story. And because that was just an event that kind of had me labeled as a monster for years in school and really opened me up to so much abuse from teachers. And so there was a day when I was sitting there drawing in my sketchbook, trying not to be overwhelmed. And the teacher basically hit me in the face and threw my sketchbook across the room. I guess, I guess nobody had told this particular teacher that this was allowable behavior. And I was just so shocked. And the sketchbook basically picked itself up and, launched itself at the teacher and hit her in the back. And here's another clip where she's telling a story about being in these laboratories where they're testing her ability to do PK. Yeah, that was actually not UVA. That was people from the Rhine Research Center. It was uh, Jim Carpenter who wrote the book First Sight. Um, he had basically kind of organized this thing where we all went to this really good Mexican restaurant and you know, he, he just wanted to show people this effect because he thought it was really interesting. And so, yeah, we had the pinwheel in the jar on the table in the restaurant and I got it to spin. And then we were passing it around and everyone was getting it to spin inside the jar. 
and you know people were coming over and looking at what was going on at the table like it was you know and it was kind of this fun thing that everybody was doing okay that's that but as i mentioned this is really a show about bigger 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 stuff the stuff that really matters because this whole psychokinesis stranger things superpowers once you get past the fireworks forces us to look at some really, really important questions about who we are, about what really matters. And it kind of knocks the nerd, bird, soulless, transhumanist scientist on their butt if you really think about it. Here's a final clip from the upcoming interview. And you're approaching it from uh, let's connect the dots and look for evidence, which, and I mean, there's a scientist part of me that's like, yeah, but, and, and you're right. If the pinwheel spins in the jar, then there's something more <laughs> to us. That's it. And if there's something more to us, then I would suggest that the burden of proof is on those who were always fooled into thinking that there wasn't more to us to put forth the best evidence that some of that more isn't love. Stick around. My interview with Cheryl Black is coming up next on Skeptico. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Sakaris, and today we welcome Cheryl Black back to Skeptico. Cheryl, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Alex. Thanks for inviting me back. So you thought I was going to do some long intro, and then I tricked you by just immediately saying hi. But I am going to do a little bit of an intro, because you joined me back for people who remember or want to go back and listen on episode 470 of Skeptico to talk about your experience with psychokinesis. Primarily, that's what we talked about, is your experience in the laboratory. So psychokinesis, just so we remember, is... We talked about it kind of in the Stranger Things thing or the Men Who Stare at Goats movie kind of thing. People who can do things with their mind. So in your case, the reason that these major laboratories were scientists, real scientists, like at the University of Virginia or at Rhine or Laurentian in Canada or other places, they wanted to invite you in because you could really do this stuff. and. Like one of the experiments that you've demonstrated in these laboratories and other other places where you've posted videos, there's like this sealed jar and there's a little pinwheel in it. And you can, like the girl on Stranger Things, you can do something with just your mind and you can make the pinwheel spin. And that changes everything we know about science in some real, real fundamental ways. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, talk a lot about that, because that point that I just made there is really not argued. It just isn't fully processed. And then the polit politics around science around that aren't really processed. And you've been on the front line of that for a number of years, you're still a PhD candidate in good standing, even though you're getting your PhD in geology, you were very involved with the scientific part of understanding this 
psychokinesis thing, this parapsychology thing, and what goes on in these labs. Ma'am, is everything I've just said accurate and correct? Is there anything you want to change? <laughs> no, as far as I know, I'm still a PhD candidate in good standing. <laughs> but that may change after this comes out. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay, point number two that you should know about Shira Lee, and this is all part of my long introduction, is that she's had near-death experience. And I said that in a funny way because I was didn't know how to say it. Because when you say somebody has had three near-death experiences, I know from experience that people freak out. They freak out and they the kind of they kind of for some reason they don't believe it. You know, like if somebody says, I've had a near-death experience or somebody, oh yeah, I've heard about that. I saw a video, I read a book. Yeah. Somebody says, I've had three near-death experiences. Oh, come on, man. You're making that up. That ain't real. You know, well, in your case, it is real. And if people want, they can go to IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Experiencers, I think, or Near-Death Studies. Oh, Near-Death Studies. I'm sorry. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Where you did a really terrific presentation. It's up on YouTube, like 100,000 views. And what I loved about that presentation let me pause for a second. I'll bring that up just so people can see it. You're laughing because I've just pulled up on the screen <laughs> if people want to share it. The presentation that you gave at IONS, terrific. You're really a very effective speaker. You're very articulate. You're just smart. But you included in here, I guess, in a very nice, non-threatening Canadian kind of way, uh, proof that what you're saying is true and proof about some of the larger aspects of your near-death experiences, that they really kind of fit this pattern in your life of kind of extraordinary experiences. And I'm highlighting that by bringing up this little image where you're showing like your second or your third grade report card, where the <laughs> teacher has written, Lee seems to be in another world at times. So the connection that I am making, because you have made it, in this presentation and in your fantastic book, which I'm gonna make sure one way or another that thing gets published because it's a very, very important book in my opinion. But you document this stuff. This stuff really happened. The stuff, the psychokinesis stuff really happened in the laboratory. Scientists have reported on it. Scientists have said, yes, this is the woman we've had in. This is the peer-reviewed work we did. Here we published it. And in the case of near-death experience, it's the same way. You really did come very, very close to dying in your third near-death experience in a horrific, horrific car accident that they left, you know, your husband at the time to say, come identify the body thing. There was no way they thought you were going to live through it. So that those near-death experiences are also connected in a way with the psychokinesis. And that's another thing we're going to want to talk about because that's point number two of this whole journey. Miss Black, is everything I said accurate and correct so far? Number two. Yeah. <laughs> so you really did have three near-death experiences. So here's the, here's the clincher of this long introduction. 
So I just published an interview with uh, Dr. Dean Radin. Cheryl Lee has been a longtime friend of mine through the show, and not in a kind of waving her arms out there, I'm so great, I've done all these things kind of thing. Actually, just the opposite. I didn't know really anything about her background. I was like, okay, there's somebody in the forum seems to know this stuff. Well, over the years, as I've come to know Cheryl Lee, I'm more and more and more amazed at what her background is and what she's knows at a very, very personal level and has experienced. So I've come to rely on her more and more in terms of just writing her emails and bouncing. What do you know about this guy? What do you know about this thing over there? What do you think's really going on here? And she's been very generous and very open about talking about that. So now I'm going to give her a chance to talk because what's happened with the thing with Dean Radin is it affected me, I think, at a level that much more than it probably affects other people. <laughs> because <laughs> there's something fundamentally important about how we are to understand all this stuff that we're talking about. Consciousness, extended consciousness, morality. Who are we? Why are we here? How are we supposed to live our lives? Is there good? Is there bad? Is there right? Is there wrong? Is there something more? Is there light? Is there love? When I set up this interview and I said the things I want to talk about, you really set the tone again when you came back to me and said, what I really want to talk about is I want to talk about love. And that's what I want to talk about. Because my, my issues with the interview that I did with Dean Radin is you can't talk about love unless you talk about the moral imperative, unless you talk about there is light, there is love, there is good, there is bad. So I've kind of laid out the whole interview. Now we just have to do it. So now I can really say, uh, welcome back. Uh, thanks for joining me. And now we can kind of jump into the the real heart of this thing. Well, <laughs> so now what do I say? <laughs> I don't know quite where to begin, to be honest with you, because like one of the questions, uh, one of the questions I have is, and it's not even a question, it's like, what can science do for us? Science can't save us, but what can science do for us? And I guess if I was going to turn that into a question is, why did you think it was important for you to go and have this ability that you have, the men who stare at goats, PK ability, why did you feel you needed to go put that under the microscope or allow other people to put that under the microscope? How does, how does it connect for you with <laughs> what I'm talking about, with love, with near-death experience, with all the rest of that? Well, at first, I didn't really think it was connected to love, but it was, I mean, at the time I was working, you know, on my science education and I wanted to know that I wasn't crazy. Uh, you know, I wanted to know that everything that I'd experienced, um, well, actually for a long time, I wanted a cure. <laughs> I wanted a cure for the experiences. I wanted to prove to myself that, that this stuff was just nonsense because 
that's what my education had kind of been teaching me. And then it didn't seem to work out that way. Like, you know, I, I, I went to Laurentian University and, you know, Dr. Persinger and Bill Roll were like, no, this isn't fantasy. This, this is real stuff and we're going to study it. And I mean, that first trip to Laurentian, that was a really big game changer for me. And it's funny because so many parapsychologists had told me not to go there. <laughs> um, you know, and yet that was a huge game changer for me because, because, you know, it taught me that you could study these things and that there was some reality, you know, to what was going on and that I wasn't crazy. And it's very hard to accept the love when you think you're crazy, you know? <laughs> um, so by figuring out that you're not crazy, um, then you can be open to the love, really. And, and so it, it was, I mean, science was kind of my way in. But even then, like, you know, you could see, like, I didn't realize it so much at the time. Like now, you know, since I've been talking to you, we've been kind of, you know, hindsight being 2020 and, and realizing that, that Persinger was far more brave than I realized at the time that he was willing to actually study these things. And I, I mean, he really had a hard time with his university, did not want him looking into these areas at all. And, and it's, you know, he, I mean, he funded his own work, which I mean, not very many professors will do that. Um, because he just felt that it was so important and, 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 uh, that you know that that I I had no idea at the time just just what a good person he was. Um, so I kind of see it differently in a way because your story, your history to me is you're a, someone who had extended conscious experiences from a very very young age, right? Yeah. Didn't you have the grandpa at the at the at the gravesite uh, really? Early, right? Am I misremembering that? Didn't you see uh, grandma. a grandma? Grandma. So I kind of got it right. That was pretty close. You had that that stare, like, "What are you talking about, Alex?" <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, you know, I did see my grandma when I was little, and yeah, I did have those experiences. But you know, I kind of went. It's funny because before I had an education in science. I didn't worry so much about having those experiences. And then after my car accident and suddenly I was really, really super interested in science and it was really the education in science that was like, you know, you must be crazy. Like, you know, like it really didn't fit with what the university was telling me. And on one hand, I felt like the science was important. Like, cause you know, I came back thinking the science is really important and and on the other hand, the science is telling me you're imagining things <laughs> like, what am I, you know, what am I going to do? Um, you know, and it's kind of funny because if I'd actually looked into these things more, if I'd known what to look for at the universities, I mean, University of Manitoba, where I did my undergraduate degrees, they have a very large collection of spirituality photographs and, um, you know, I guess the first head of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Manitoba 
um, was known for holding seances. Um, and it, there's a, a fairly extensive collection at the University of Manitoba that I had no idea was there while I was a student. And I, I wish I had known, you know, and it, it's like, it's a dirty secret <laughs> of, of, you know, academia that, you know, it's kind of like you, you don't look at Newton's other interests, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like when you look at Newton and, and you, you know, you, you look at gravity and things, but you don't look at the fact that he was also interested in alchemy. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know quite where to take that because when, you know, I don't know that the interest in alchemy was that spot on either. I mean, well, no, but the fact that people do, you know, that that it's like only the accepted parts of them are allowed to carry on through history. And so you don't realize when you're a student, particularly as an undergrad, how much is edited before you get to it. You know? <laughs> I, I, well, I definitely think that's true. I guess it's, it's your, it's your story in your life, you know, and I'm reading it and interpreting it, but I got to say, I'm interpreting it a little bit slightly differently than you are. Although maybe the same is that you're, uh, a person in this family who has these gifts that are unexplainable. And a lot of people in your family, most people in your family are like, she's weird. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And there's maybe one person in your family who's like, no, she ain't weird. She's special. This is really a gift and it yeah. needs to be, somebody needs to tell her it's good and it's, it's really important. So you go through, this life kind of not feeling totally confident because this essential part of you is kind of not put so down. well yeah put down yeah put down. Really used and it's funny because when i look into the history of my family like i'm i'm certainly not the first one like me and and you know some of the women that were like me i mean one was like the first woman to to be a doctor in the province that I grew up in, you know, to have a, have a medical practice. And, and she was like me. And another one was, you know, a registered nurse who grew up um, in a traditional Mennonite family that became a nurse and a private nurse of a millionaire and traveled the world and did things that were not really considered what you do when you grow up in a traditional Mennonite community. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and, and when she had dreams and everybody would be like, Oh, she, you know, this is what she, she dreamt about. And it was kind of an adult conversation. Like when I was a kid, like, you know, you, you didn't really talk openly about what she, what she dreamed about, but clearly other people took it seriously, even while they were cuckooing it. And then I had an uncle who was horribly scarred um, as a veteran of the Second World War, and he actually ended up in a concentration camp. And, uh, you know, he saw the ghosts of his battalion, and, you know, he carried those with him until he passed away. But, but I mean, he was the first adult when I was a little kid that I remember talking about seeing ghosts, like, because, and I used to wonder, well, I thought everyone saw them, but the adults just, pretended they didn't or just it like it wasn't talked about in polite company like sex 
you know, <laughs> like I just thought it was just one of those things you didn't talk about openly, but that everybody knew it was there. Yeah. So, you know, when you tie that into like your near death experience, Sis, but in particular, your third near death experience where you almost died in this car crash. So a couple of interesting things come out of that. And again, I tie it back to what I was saying at the beginning, you know, there's this crazy interplay that we're going to have in this conversation. The interplay is between <laughs> science and spirituality. And I think science has a role to play here. That's why we're having this conversation. Well, when you have your near-death experience, you don't know totally how to process it, but you gain some benefit from some of the science of near-death experience that tells you that the after effects you're having, which in your case is increased psychic ability, which has now been documented by other researchers into near-death experience and said, well, Shirley, I don't know if you're experiencing that or not, but if you were to, it would not be all that uncommon. That sometimes happens to people who have near-death experiences. And that's important information for you because we can hear from your story how difficult it was for you to process that change, that going from a person who's artistic and musical to a person who just wanted to study science. And it's like, why, why is that happening? And why am I having these increased psychokinesis powers? Why, when my first husband tries to kill me, does all the lights in the house go on and off and he gets so frightened that he has to run out of the house? This is right out of, again, some movie, but this is your life. And it's super duper important as it relates to science and to science's fundamental assumptions. So I want to start piecing that together in a scientific way. Uh, how much did you know about the near-death experience after you had your car wreck? Nothing. I didn't know it. I, I didn't know anything about it. And the first first bit of information I got was from an an army uh, chaplain, you know, a, a padre actually. And uh, and he like because I had questions and I, I you know I was in, in the military at the time and I had questions and I asked him and he told me that well he didn't have a name for the experience but he said that. It was a common experience for people in the military who'd almost died or had been, you know, in terrible combat situations. And, and, and you know, he said that this was actually a fairly common experience for people who'd undergone, you know, trauma and, and almost been killed. But he didn't come up with a name for it. But what he did do is he said, we don't want this on your record in any way. So I'm going to send you to a friend of mine in this, in this uh, church, in your community, and we'll just keep this quiet and you can go talk to this person and we'll keep this out of your military records because you're not crazy, but we don't want this on your record. <laughs> okay. And that partially, that partially answers it from one way. But see, the thing that that doesn't, I mean, you know, this stuff is real, right? So this is another, I, I don't know quite how to trust this. this. Frickin' Shirley, you know, it's real. So the, the chaplain doesn't, uh, doesn't know the Padre. He doesn't know. He's just repeating back and he's following the procedures. 
you've seen ghosts your whole life. So whatever it is you're doing in terms of processing the near-death experience and the near-death experience that you had, you're processing it from your experience, right? Yes, but you know, there's this thing that I, you know, like the big difference between the near-death experience and seeing ghosts is that when you see ghosts, you will forget. Like there's just some part of us and there's some part of these experiences, like if I didn't write everything down, I, it just amazes me how much of it I just managed to put out of my mind and forget. And, you know, like when I was writing my book, I went through old diaries and I was like, oh, my God, like now I remember this because I'm reading this again. And I and and now it's like coming back to me full force. But but you push things away where the near death experience, the weird thing about the near death experience is you can't get rid of it. It, it it has a hold on you and you carry it with you in a way that the other experiences aren't able to stay with you. Okay. Again, I, I don't know. I don't know that this is, <laughs> this might be a totally useless interview for anybody, but, but me, but me, because for me, I'm fascinated. Because yeah. see, it doesn't, it, it doesn't sync up here again. It's like, it's like there's two yous, you know, who are kind of being pushed in this different direction through this journey that we're on. Because the next thing that you talk about is, gee, I'm having these paranormal experiences and I, one, I just want them to go away, which I can't really process on a complete level that you ever thought that was really, but uh, well, let's just take that because there's a lot of pro trauma it's causing you in your life. But then two, you know, I'm going to, agree to go to these laboratories and have them test this in this very, very narrow way. Because here you are somebody who has this incredibly extend, expanded view of these extended realms. And you're going to say, okay, you, you want me to spin a wheel under a glass? Okay, let me see if I can spin a wheel under a glass. I mean, that's like fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what this stuff is all about but if you want me to spin a wheel under a glass okay do you get how that looks do you get do you know what i mean how that looks from you know if you really try and process your the whole thing that you're about there's this like little bit of a disconnect it is but you know because at the time i was studying science i actually really really wanted to come up with a small repeatable effect like i wanted it to be a small effect not too big an effect i mean that was because i thought if it's a big effect people will be terrified of me i'll be terrified like i thought i mean i was worried i'd be i was becoming a monster you know like there, there is that feeling that you know does this make me a monster like this what if because you this? because your feelings if they got real intense could cause stranger things kind of stuff lights going on and off you know people feeling it that kind of stuff right that's what you're experiencing yeah that you know that you could scare people with it i mean even just spinning the wheel into the pinwheel i've had lots of people in my family who've seen it and said oh that's really creepy and they you know like they don't say oh that's really interesting and cool they look at it and go that's really creepy stop it you know and, and so so you know you you don't do it in front of them anymore and and you don't talk about it and and they will if you ask them if they've ever seen it they'll deny it 
you know, that's the one thing I find that, that, that if anything big happens, even people who are used to little things happening, if something big happens, people who are close to me, um, they'll forget the big things moving. Um, you know, uh, it's just, cause it's just too much. And so I didn't want that. I didn't want to be a monster. Like, you know, and I mean, now that I read some of the books, like the PK man, you know, like, like he did, I, whether or not he caused, you know, bad things to happen to people, he thought he did. You know? well, then that, that would open up the whole ET can of worms. I don't even want to go there. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell the story about when you were a kid in school and the book. No. I hate that story and why do you hate that story because because that was just an event that kind of had me labeled as a monster for years in school and really opened me up to so much abuse from teachers and and you know um that that really like i was I was always bored in school and I was always overwhelmed because I, you know, I'd had a near death experience when I was 10. Um, my, my appendix basically burst. <laughs> and afterwards, like before that had happened, I'd been this really cute, popular little girl, you know, and I had lots of friends and, and everything was really good. And then suddenly, you know, I had this experience where, my appendix burst and I got really sick. And then afterwards I was just overwhelmed by everything. Like being in a room full of people was just an overwhelming experience because I would pick up feelings and emotions and it was too noisy and I just couldn't handle it. And I would do everything I could to get removed from the classroom, whether I, you know, and you can only stay home with a tummy ache so often. And, you know, and so I started do doing what I could just to get, kicked out of class and it got to the point where I was allowed I was told well if you're sitting and drawing in your sketchbook and that gives you that little bubble of peace that you can kind of stay in the classroom um, then whenever you start to feel overwhelmed just take out your sketchbook and start drawing and we'll cut you some slack in class like that's what I was told by this you know the school guidance counselor that I could sit there and draw in my sketchbook and as long as I was keeping up with the homework and studies, nobody would would bother with me. And so there was a day when I was sitting there drawing in my sketchbook, trying not to be overwhelmed. And the teacher basically hit me in the face and threw my sketchbook across the room. I guess I guess nobody had told this particular teacher that this was allowable behavior. And I was just so shocked. Like I was just, you know, I felt safe in school until that point. And then suddenly I wasn't safe and the sketchbook basically picked itself up and launched itself at the teacher and hit her in the back. And after that, it, I was just, I was the school monster, you know, the and I mean, that teacher actually ended up uh, needing some psychiatric help. <laughs> <laughs> so Shirley, let's make sure we we got that because i think it's in it it's like a super important story if it's real if it's real it's really important so how do we know that it's real well 
like I said, if you go to the IONS video that you presented, you go back and you say, hey, here's when I had my appendicitis and almost died. Here are all the lovely letters that all my classmates are sending me and all the rest of that. And then you also have um, the other works from your school that would suggest that the story has some veracity to it, some realness to it. Is there anything else you could add that would be like, if, let me put it this way. If someone pushed you because one, they'd have to think it through and think how important that story is. And we'll explore that fully, but said, you know what I'm in, if you can prove it, do you think you could prove it in the way that people normally think about it? I don't really see how I could because I mean, it do, was do you, could you could you find other students? And I'm just saying hypothetical. I'm not going to, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm just saying hypothetically. Do you still know students who were with you in the class mm -hmm. who could say, I remember that day and I remember that book just picking itself up off the ground and Harry Potter style flying across the room. And I remember the commotion afterwards. I had one friend who saw it and she passed away. Um, like one friend that I still kept in contact with for the most part. I mean, I was kind of a pariah. No, like nobody came near me. And then even I started to doubt it for a while because it was just driven home by the teachers. This is not what happened. I mean, I remember, you know, my parents were basically tried to push into putting me on these seriously nasty drugs to shut me down, um, or I wasn't going to be allowed to stay in school. And what did they tell your parents had happened? Uh, they told the parents that I was a bad kid and threw a book at the teacher. They didn't tell the, my parents that she hit me. You know, like that was the other thing is that part of it was completely like, no, 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 the teacher did not hit her. And nobody in this class will say that she did, you know, <laughs> and, and well, well, hold on for a second. I, I, I get you. But take that part out of the story, because the part of the story we care about is that the oh, book I know, I know. was over on the other side of the room and they acknowledge that you threw the book at the teacher. They're saying, yeah, she threw the book at the teacher. Yeah. So you weren't there to throw the book at the teacher, at least not in your physical form. There was part of your consciousness that was there. So, yeah, but that, well, and I mean, I didn't think it was me doing it anyway, because I just, you know, like I just thought that things just moved by themselves. I didn't really, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see it as something I was doing when I was that little. I just thought stuff moved, what get it, get over it. But no, like, I, I mean, I had it drilled into me that no, that this didn't happen. Like I said, the teacher needed psychiatric help. So maybe she, maybe she was dumb enough to admit the book moved because <laughs> she didn't want me in her classroom. Um, I know that I was taken out of class every, every Wednesday for like a number of years and sent to special testing that did nothing, <laughs> but you know, make me feel even more like a weirdo because everyone thought that there must be something really wrong with me that I had to go to the room with the two-way mirrors every week. <laughs> so what makes this, so what I push that good enough. 
So again, what makes this thing interesting in the scientific realm that we're going to talk about is that eventually you wind up in a laboratory where there's like quote unquote real scientists, which I don't know where we want to go with that, but there's people who are saying, okay, let's see if you really can do this PK stuff, which in and of itself would add validation to your earlier story, unless we think that you just, this is the only thing you can do is, you know, spin wheels inside of glasses. <laughs> That's what God has put you on earth yeah. to do. So <laughs> tell folks uh, again, in a way that they would make it really believable to them in a very matter of fact way, uh, why we should, why we should believe that you really were in a laboratory and you really did spin a wheel that was under a glass. Can I have a two minute break? Sorry, I apologize. Absolutely. Sorry, I just need a two minute break. I'll be right back. What kind of dog is that? Um, he's a Lassa Apso. So apparently the, the tradition is that Tibetan monks, if they were too goofy and uh, didn't reincarnate the way they were supposed to, they'd come back as Lassa Apsos. That's a great story. That's a great story. <laughs> that that's why you're that's why it's considered really bad form to sell one. Um that the original ones that came to North America were gifts from the uh from the Dalai Lama. Lama. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they, they're thought to be reincarnated monks that didn't take their studies seriously. <laughs> God. I mean, you know, we could spend an hour talking about all that because it's like, <laughs> no, in a, in a way, that's again this intersection of science and spirituality and what we want out of science and then what we don't get out of science, you know, so we want to some way know whether there's anything to that story at all, right? I mean, yeah. we do. That's kind of like a pretty incredible story. Yeah. And when science comes back and goes, well, you know, probably not for these reasons and they're verifiable, then you're like, great. But then when science goes one step further and says, yeah, because we're all just our brain and there's nothing more and you can't really love that love that you feel for that dog, that isn't really real. I mean, yeah. not to completely switch gears, but, and now let's just continue, continue with the story because where I was at and trying to this is that you know I, I, out of me <laughs> well yeah i know i know i'm difficult <laughs> no i don't i don't see it that way i don't see it that way I, I i i don't think you're difficult at all i think you're incredibly open and incredibly uh brave and people say that a lot and it can mean a lot of different things but you've had a lot of experiences that similar folks are just not able to process and they just run from completely and you are consistently throughout your life running into the fire you know there's the fire and you're like okay <laughs> let's run in there and see what happens because that's what happens when you go to these labs because the your experience in these labs in these Psy labs where they're going to do the men that stare at goats and let's be clear because we touched on this last time and people hear it and again it's one of those things it doesn't fit into their paradigm and they just blow it off but 
this is a lot of the ABC agencies, you know, naval intelligence, CIA, military intelligence. It would be irresponsible for them not to understand PK because if you can spin a wheel under a glass, then who's to say you can't stop the heart of Vladimir Putin in Russia? Uh, it is that is the that is men who stare at goats. That is what that movie's about, and that movie is about what really happened in MKL's program, where they said, "Hey, can this guy stare at a goat and make the goat's heart stop?" So it would be it, it would be irresponsible for us not to understand whether that could be done to us, which is always the excuse for us to weaponize it and do it to other people. So when you are walking into those labs, that is part of the agenda. And the way that that game works is some of those people in the lab know that a very, very, very small number know it at some level. Most of them don't. And they're just doing what they think is good, curious research, which it is, but there is always that shadow in that. Um, now you don't realize that, I'm sure you didn't realize that at the time, you were just, the stuff was happening, you wanted to know as it happened. But you have, at this point, a long experience, many times being invited to these labs around the world, and some of them you don't go to because you're not totally comfortable with the men at Steric Goats thing. But yeah. So when I say it's not so much like you're difficult to talk to, no, to the contrary. It's like you're probably one of the most important people in the world to talk to about this stuff. That's the difficult part is yeah. we could explore this like in a million different angles and all of them are super relevant, super important on a geopolitical, parapolitical, scientific, spiritual angle. So I'm just struggle with what do I ask next? So tell us about PK in the lab. Um, well, I, you know, sometimes, sometimes the PK does not cooperate <laughs> in the lab. I mean, sometimes, you know, um, I think one of the experiences I had was at the Rhine Research Center. And the first day I got there, one of the people that I was going to be working with and I'd never met him before, and I didn't know him beforehand. I mean, I went there to work with Robert and Suzanne May, and they're lovely people. So working with them was great. And I think the first time I went to the Rhine Research Center, it was just with, with them for the most part. And that was really a positive experience. The second time I went, there were some other people that kind of attached themselves to it. And one of which, on, on the very first day I was there, told me that all psychics are cheats. <laughs> and okay, it was so, kind of like you know and that was not not you know and it's like okay well even if you think that do you really want to tell the person who's come here uh, um you know spending her time uh coming to this laboratory to do some work and you're going to tell her that basically everyone like her is a charlatan See, like even there, there's there's so much to to talk about there. So first, break it down. Rhine Research Institute is one of the first and most famous parapsychology research institutes in the world. It spun off from Duke University, and this guy Rhine, what was his first name or initials? He always goes oh, by. Oh, Jake. Anyway, Ryan. 
Yeah, J.B. Ryan, exactly. Yeah. And they did a bunch of these experiments. And one one of the experiments they're best known for is the kind of Zener cards, you know, where they have the five cards. You know it. I'm explaining yeah. it to people. You know, you've <laughs> seen they have the five different cards, yeah. the moon, the star, this and that. And one person holds the card and says, see if they can telepathically communicate it to this other person. Now, if you go and look at that research, which in a way is kind of related to the work that Shirley is telling us about psychokinesis is different, but it's all in this category of outside time space, outside of the mind body limitation that we normally associate with the brain. So anyways, they did this experiment successfully, and it's not a hard experiment to control, you know, like you'll, this is all this stuff has been polluted by the phony skeptical, which is an operation kind of thing. They say, oh my God, you know, there's so much room for cheating. Well, there's not. You just put people in two different floors of two different buildings like they did at the Rhine Institute uh, 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 way back in the day, and there's no opportunity for, for cheating. And what they did in one of their experiments, Thurman, they had 143 consecutive successful trials. So one person was able to say, okay, I see a moon. And then the other person on the other, in another room in another building was able to say, I think it's a moon. And they got it right 143 times in a row. So there's a lot of this kind of research that's buried in these walls. And then it's interesting that they bring you out there. They've done other demonstrations of PK, the ones I've seen online, other people can find it where they have it more kind of from a technology standpoint, they have this machine that people can show that it generates and it moves across the room again, PK, and then they have you. So I, I think uh, Ed and Suzanne May are probably better known for near-death experience, but they're definitely well qualified in uh, parapsychology research and psi research. And that's why they're at Rhine and they know all this stuff. And then the last thing I can't resist commenting on is there is always this infiltration kind of counterintelligence thing where in these places that are supposed to be studying one thing you have this person that's i don't know why they're there you know to it, yeah. it like you said it's not even it's not even honest science to say a priori i think you're fake i mean that's not being objective in any way so that's the you know rupert cheldrick richard wiseman like that's not adding to it that's just doing something else that we can't understand inside of that. But so tell us specifically what happened at Ryan. What did they want you to do? Was it spinning a glass, spinning a wheel inside of a glass? Was it something else? How do they set up that experiment? How do they control for it? How do they do the rest? Well, the first time I was there with Robert and Suzanne, most of what we did was basically spinning the pinwheel inside the little jar. And, and, uh, Oh, should have read up because we did a lot of different experiments with that where they tried different types of sensors to see if they could see something else going on while it was moving, you know? Um, well, it's just, uh, again, because we've talked about a bunch of times, people can find these uh, videos on YouTube if they look really carefully. I think they can find uh, one or two of your videos are up there, are they? Probably. I think if you go to, it's Robert Mays, not Ed Mays. <laughs> Robert. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Different people. <laughs> but uh, Robert and Suzanne, and uh, they've got 
Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of If you look at Robert's interviews on Skeptico, I'm sure his website's listed there somewhere. Cause, okay. Because so, they've... So we're, we're talking about something that, number one, people don't know, or if they do know, they've seen it in kind of a David Blaney kind of yeah. magic fake way. And there's a bunch of fake videos on the YouTube, entertainment videos on the YouTube, on YouTube saying, isn't this cool? And you put a little pin and you put a little wheel on it and they put a jar, but you can't really see the touch. You know, there's all ways to yeah. fake it. But if you bring it into a lab, it's a very, very easy experiment to control, right? It really is. Oh yeah. Because it's like, well, if it's, if it's inside a, a closed container, I'm not blowing on it. And you can check to see if it can, like you can take a, Oh, a hairdryer and blow air at it. And you can see, well, it's a closed container. <laughs> you, you can, you can uh, rub it with static reducers to get the static electricity gone. Um, you know, the second time I went back, I actually brought um, an eggly wheel and they had, they had actually purchased their own eggly wheel because they wanted me to use what's a device. An eggly, what's an eggly wheel and why did Dean Raiden tell you to use it? Oh, okay. Well, Dean told me to use it because he said that they had one in their lab and no one had ever been able to get it to spin when it was in a covered container. And what is an eggly wheel? It's basically a very fancy pinwheel. <laughs> it's basically, and it's supposed to be controlled for, for things like static electricity and, and, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, can, convection currents things like that but but basically if it's underneath underneath that like you know a glass or a whatever if it's under if it's this in a sealed container that kind of makes it difficult uh, dean says they'd never had anyone who could move it under a container so which is which is going to be interesting as we as we go into this four and a half hour interview <laughs> i'm so sorry I'm, no no I'm no it's i'm 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 apologizing because I'm not going to be able to stop. But here's the reason that, that I, I would add to everything that you said. It's maybe obvious for some people, but not for others. The other thing I can do is I can take the eggly wheel. I can put it down on the table. I can put it or I can put it inside of a sealed glass container and I can videotape it for a week. And nothing ever changes during the sunrise, sunset, the yeah. lights going on, all, it never yeah. moves. And now I bring in this person, Cheryl Lee, who has said that she can do this and she makes it happen. I said, Ooh, yeah. that's interesting. Now I remove her from the, from the room and I can let it go for another week and it never moves. And I bring her back in and I can do it. This would be a way of having a very controlled experiment. And it's kind of along the lines of what Dean Radin has done. And then you'd say, okay, I have my control time when nothing is happening and nothing does happen. And then I have my effect time when this person who claims to be able to introduce this effect is doing it and it's measurable. That's very simple science and it's very powerful science. And that's what they did, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, they did other controls as well. I mean, actually the real, the skeptical guy at one point, he put the eggly wheel um, basically on tinfoil that was grounded because he, he was convinced that it was just electricity. No, no, but this is funny. This part is really funny. So what he did was he was randomly um, 
connecting like connecting the little thingy so that it was grounded and then unconnecting it and asking me to say if it's easier or harder to move the little wheel around. And I could tell him every single time he unconnected it because it worked the opposite of the way he decided it should. He said that when, when it was grounded, it should, it should be, you know, harder to move. And it was actually easier, like way easier. <laughs> and, and which really annoyed him. And, and his, and because he was so convinced of his take on the science, his explanation was, is that I psychically knew when he was connecting and unconnecting the grounding device. And so that it was just me being an evil psychic and telling him the opposite of what was actually happening just because I wanted to piss him off, which was <laughs> so. So he said I was 100 percent on it. So I was like the best psychic ever. <laughs> well, that's that's just an amazing story because it really gets to the issue. If you want confirmation of that, he even talks about that in a video that the Rhine Research Center put up. So, so it's not just me saying it. He actually does admit to it in a video. <laughs> I, I want to see that video. Because for you. <laughs> yeah. This this kind of does kind of jump us into the conversation that we're going to have about the interview that I had with Dean Raiden. Because this is point one is the I wouldn't believe it even if it was true phenomenon. And you can hear it. I first heard it from Rupert Sheldrick. He tells the story beautifully where he's doing a presentation to the Royal Society in England about his amazing science. And a guy, one of the Royal Society guys in England, Oxford, Cambridge, actually, where Rupert got his education, stands up, turns his back to the presentation, to the data that's being presented and says, I wouldn't believe it even if it was true. And this is something that we're familiar with on a kind of personal level in terms of just friends and family who have any sort of beliefs about all sorts of political or religious beliefs or anything like that. It's paradigm, it's dogma doesn't change. And we look for science, I look, and this is my upset with the Dean Radin interview, is I always felt that science was a chance that we had to kind of go past that, to kind of say, well, wait a minute, we all know that we have prejudices, we have biases, but we can control for them a little bit with this science thing. But what your experience tells us, and I think in a way the interview with Dean Radin tells us, is that doesn't always work exactly the way that it, the way that it should. Because these guys in the PK lab, I mean, in the, in the Psy lab, if anyone in the world should be willing to have their paradigm shattered, they should they're setting themselves up say come shatter my paradigm and then you shatter their paradigm and they're like i wouldn't believe it even if it was true and this is where we're we're going to consistently be stuck with science yeah oh i know well and you know one of the things that the pk it can be really a total jerk <laughs> the way it acts sometimes is because like the one researcher who who first off said all you know all psychics are cheats and 
and was very uncomfortable. Every time that wheel spun, you could see it made him uncomfortable. And what was even funnier was that there were times when I'd be across the room and he'd go close to the wheel on the table and, and it would start spinning and he'd jump back. And it was like, it was like, yeah, it's just going to do that every time you go near that because that's just funny. <laughs> You know, you, you also tell the story, and this is just kind of anecdotally fun and true in a, in a way that is kind of unexplainable other than there's something in the extended consciousness realm that is that trickster. But you related to me the story that, you know, as you do this, it opens up this ability in other people. In some way, I say that not knowing what that really means. But you do PK and suddenly people around you say, let me give it a try, and then they can do it too. And then you go out to dinner with the guys from UVA and everyone's passing the jar around and everyone's like, hey, I did it, I did it. Give me another drink, this is great. And then the second part of that story you tell is, a few weeks later, they're like, no, I can't do it anymore. And you know what? I wonder if I really ever could do it. You know, it's yeah. like. Yeah, that was actually not UVA. That was people from the Rhine Research Center. It was uh, Jim Carpenter who wrote the book First Sight. Um, he had basically kind of organized this thing where we all went to this really good Mexican restaurant. And, you know, he, he just wanted to show people this effect because he thought it was really interesting. And so. Yeah, we had the pinwheel in the jar on the table in the restaurant and I got it to spin and then we were passing it around and everyone was getting it to spin inside the jar. And, you know, people were coming over and looking at what was going on at the table. Like it was, you know, um, and it was kind of this fun thing that everybody was doing. And apparently even like the eggly wheel, like because the Ryan bought their own eggly wheel. And so they had it after I was gone. And they said that for a while, people could come into the lab and get that eggly wheel to spin under the container. And that worked for maybe six months or so. And then it doesn't seem to work anymore. <laughs> you know, like the, it worked for a while and, you know, everybody was kind of believing in it for a while. And then they just kind of stopped believing in it. So one of the things I want to draw out, and I'm not doing a great job with this because I... I, I... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I, that's like too, too complicated. But one of the things I thought was interesting in my talk with Dean was one of the really brilliant things that Dean has done with these experiments, which again are fundamental to science because the fundamental assumption of science is that you are a soulless biological robot in a meaningless universe and nothing you could do could possibly matter because everything that, and, and I, I gotta say in saying this, Dean totally stumbles on the second part of this because I'm the one who brought you into the conversation with Dean Radin because I said, Hey, I got a friend, Shirley Black, most amazing PK person in the world. It's done all this stuff in all these laboratories. And she'll tell you, she's had these kind of abilities her whole life and they are connected to near-death experience and she's had three near-death experiences and by the way her near-death experiences are not substantially different from thousands and thousands of other near-death experiences of course they're unique but they have a lot of these similarities the kind of things that scientists would generally think are important 
when we measure those things, when we go out and talk to people about their experiences, like we do if they're depressed or if they're anxious or if they're grieving, we rely on their reporting, their self-reporting of their experiences in order to find commonalities, in order to treat, in order to develop an understanding of that. So this idea that we would collect these accounts across the spectrum and analyze it is pure science, is very mainstream science. So when I bring that up to Dean and say, so this has been reported that there is this connection between the extended consciousness realm. And he goes, no, haven't you heard? The latest study on near-death experience says that it's just the EEG extending beyond death. And I'm like, Dane, how, how can you be saying, how can you be not following the science? That is a ridiculous explanation. It's been proven over and over again. And then I talked to my friend, Mark Ireland, who just had an interview with Pim van Lamel, the cardiologist, famous cardiologist from the Netherlands, who's published some of the most scientifically rigorous work on near-death experience. And he's written up the whole thing saying, well, that's bullshit. That doesn't really explain the EEG that they're finding, doesn't really, wouldn't really correlate with what we found in other medical conditions, the EEG of people under near-death experience. It doesn't fit with the overall phenomenon as we understood it. It just doesn't fit, doesn't fit, doesn't fit. So here I have Dr. Dean Radin, who I have so much admiration for, doing really, really, really sloppy science because he's stating something as if he knows it, and it's just not supported by the best science. He's doing what everyone else is doing with his stuff, which is to say, I wouldn't believe it if it, even if it was true. I don't want to believe it because it contradicts my worldview. It contradicts what, how I want to see my place in the world. I want to believe in this kind of Luciferian transhumanism, kind of do what thou wilt, create better than the creator gods. And I don't want any data that would kind of push me off that. And if I get that data, I'm going to have some really creative ways about spinning it in some other way. That's what I see happening in the interview with Dean Radin, but that's what I see happening in a broader sense in your experience with both PK in the lab and NDE in the broader sense of how it fits. So, I don't know what part of that we're going to tackle and how you want to tackle it because I don't want to pull you into my kind of issues with this stuff, yeah. but we do have to talk about, we do have to swing this thing back into talking about love and we have to understand that we can't talk about love until we nail this down. Otherwise we're just talking about love as a construct, as a social construct, as a, you know, it's yeah. not real. It's just a biological bullshit kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What isn't a, a social construct these days, but you know, I mean, essentially you're looking at when did parapsychology go from looking at being part of the human potential movement, which I mean, the human potential movement was, you know, be your best self, be loving, connect with you know like let's connect and be loving and it went from that to being more of the transhumanist you know humanity is done let's 
transfer our consciousness into robots now and let's get rid of love because love is what makes us do all the bad things you know love is what makes us like they they transhumanism has no room for love it absolutely you know like their basic idea seems to be that that uh, humans are just really really horrible creatures and that it's our desire to have children and form communities and you know that that all leads to having wars with other communities and it leads to all the bad stuff in the world and that humans are just so bad that we have to give up all the good stuff to get rid of the bad stuff so we have to give up the love like that's what they're saying is is that you have to give up the love to to get a world that's peaceful see and i, I think that that both of those uh miss the point i think the human potential movement missed the point and i think the transhumanism movement misses the point because the point to me is really at the root of Dean Braden's work and at the root of your work. And that is, what is love? Because, and another way of stating the what is love thing is the way that I put it to Dean, and Dean immediately got very, kind of was pulling back on the issue. I can actually, I'm going to pull it up and play it here. Yeah, you're talking about issues of morality and ethics, and uh, it's it might be related to all this, but I'm I'm not sure I would go there, except for w with one proviso, and that is that uh, if if you completely adopt materialism as the your way that you'll understand reality, then that leads to a picture of the world which which is nihilism, which means there there is no ultimate purpose to anything. Uh, when when your body dies, you're dead. That's the end of it, um, and and is collected into this quip of uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's that gives rise to the modern world that we see today, where essentially business is extractive. It is it's taking things out of the natural world, turning into something else, and then selling it to you. Well, that's not sustainable. Okay, so. This is really the issue right there. And that in that, I would say it's like so many things. Most people are going to listen to that and they're going to be nodding their head like, yeah, 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 all the way. I would suggest that it is logically inconsistent and incoherent in that, you know, the morality question is at the center of this in that the big morality question is, is there good and bad? Is there good and bad outside of the moral construct? Because you just said something, you know, you said, hey, everything's a moral construct these days. Ha ha. Well, that's always been true, right? We understand that is, is it okay to kill somebody? No. Well, what about in war? What about in self-defense? Oh, well, then maybe. So everything has that element of moral construct. The philosophical question that we're supposed to be answering in science that Dean, I always thought was at the core of his thing is, of course, we get that part. What we want to know, 
is there ever any time when there is some aspect of it, even the smallest part of it, that is more than a social construct? Is there ever anything more? And he's saying, he's contradicting himself because he's saying, well, I think that we would want to do these good things. Why would we want to do, if, if it's purely a moral construct, then all that environmentally sound stuff that people get all excited about doesn't really make any sense. It's just a moral construct. It's just people agreeing, well, shouldn't we save the planet? Why? Well, because of our kids. Why? Why, why, why? Why anything if there isn't at the core of it some kind of moral sense of this is good, this is bad. And I can't believe that he kind of has conflated those two in a way, but then again, I can because I just see everybody doing it over and over again. You, you have to be kind of a purist, radical philosopher to see that this is the core question. Is there a moral imperative? Of course there's a moral imperative. That's what the near-death experience tells us. And it tells us as clearly as it could be. It's the number one thing that people come back and say, there is love, there is good, there is light. It changed me. You can't have all that data like at 90% and then turn around and go, well, I wouldn't believe it even if they even if they told me so. Yeah. No, I I would totally agree that love is is a real thing. And you know, it's funny when I was when I did my first university degree, it was fine arts degree. And the uh the fellow who uh, supervised my thesis there he he kind of he told me the secret to the universe when I was just a teenager. And basically he said that there is no art without love. And and he said that really, you know, good art and bad art, he said that, you know, drawings on 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 a piece of paper, what what makes one drawing um have an effect on others is love. Is is the you know, like you have to do where if you're going to be an artist, you have to put your love into your work or it's crap. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that was how he described it. And I didn't really understand that until I was a lot older that really it's, it's the love you put into things is, is what makes it meaningful and, and gives it an impact in the world. And love is a real thing, you know? You keep saying that. How do we know that that's true? How do we know that? Because we have to consider that the alternative to that is that love is merely a biological function of your brain. It's this soup of chemicals that you're swimming in being released inside your body. And we can, there's, there's correlation there, right? We can see that we can, shoot people full of these chemicals or measure when they're full of these chemicals. And we can measure, we can ask them their feelings and they feel more quote unquote love. How do we know there isn't anything more to it than that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a hint. You give me a hint. You'll give me, a hint. well, I mean, as a near death experiencer, I guess I just don't doubt it. So it's not like I've had to look for that. <laughs> nope. But uh, 
It's in your lab. It's in your PK lab. Let, let me play an, another clip here, and you'll see. You know, you don't have to agree with me. No one else does. All of the experiments involving mind and matter are essentially asking the question, is mind, is it causal? Or put it in broader sense, is consciousness causal in the physical world? Does it play a role other than within the body? And so one way of thinking of it is that I can use my intention and make something happen with 100% reliability. So I shall now demonstrate that. Uh, right arm, move up. Well, it did that. Well, it's just a mind-matter interaction. My intention has made something happen. The question here, though, is what else can it do? Is it purely something within the body or does it act at a distance? So the non-local aspect of it is saying that at a distance, my thoughts can influence something else and we can measure that it actually happened. Uh, what makes it, and that's, that's uh, non-local in space. So... Stay with me here. There's a leap of logic, but it really isn't a big one. Just a lot of people don't want to go down it. And that's that. So what you proved in the lab directly is what he's saying, right? And he proved it one way, and he did it that way for a particular reason, because he, he framed up his experiments inside of the double slit experiment, because that's what science was ready to take. They say, okay, we've seen that thing done a thousand times. We've seen that trick done on stage a thousand times. And he said, ah, but you haven't seen it done this way. And then he does the double slit experiment and he does the, shows the entanglement thing and the coherence thing. And he shows the eye dilation thing and all that. And everyone goes, woo, wow. Now, if he really wanted to get ooh, ahs, he'd have Cherilee spin the wheel. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Spin the wheel is a thousand times more powerful in terms of its power to convince someone than anything that Dean has done. But that's okay. And that's why the experimenters that you that do it then got to go, don't, don't stop it. I know I asked you to do it, but now stop doing it because I can't handle it anymore. Right? I mean, it's a more powerful yeah. experiment. Well, Dean's had other people in his lab that could move stuff in like do the PK stuff. Like I, I wouldn't have been even the first, but he didn't, he, he explained to me that it was just incredibly expensive to do that kind of experimentation to a standard in which he would be willing to put his name behind kind of thing. But certainly, certainly I would not have been the first person going to California to do that kind of thing. Uh, you know, And I mean, right. and, and, you know, and I mean, and I'm certainly not the only one out there who could. And, you know, and I've talked to other people. It's funny because after I did that IONS video, there was another fellow, um, Sean McNamara, who saw the video and thought, gee, I wonder if I could do that. And he found out he could. <laughs> and so he's actually teaching classes and doing it now because he thinks it's a cool thing. And he's like, you know, been to some labs too. And, you know, I think that he's had some frustrations in terms of dealing with researchers that it's almost like the better your results, the less they want to do with you. <laughs> okay. Let me try and continue to stitch this together. Here is my frenemy, Michael Shermer, talking to Joe Rogan about oh. life after death and a book I interviewed him on the show about, and he 
completely failed. I mean, he misquoted all the researchers that he was quoting in his book, and I pointed that out to him. And Michael, in his typical way, just handled it with the greatest ease and the... Sidestepping. No, just the, the, the kind of panache, you know, kind of like a, wow, well, that's an interesting thought you're having there, but uh, here's what's really kind of the thing. Yeah. So this is uh, Michael Shermer on Joe Rogan, two Luciferian guys talking about do what thou wilt. And uh, yeah, I see you laughed. See, no one else, you get the joke. No one else gets the joke, but it's not really a joke because if you're looking at the world this way, there's only a couple ways to divide the world. And that's the Gnostic Luciferian way is one way to divide it. The light and love is the other way to divide it. And it really isn't a lot more complicated than that. It really is that simple. Okay, take it away, Michael. But if you think about it from a simple perspective, the entire universe is in your brain. And when you cease to exist, the universe ceases to exist. It's just sort of true by definition. No, it's now, He not. goes a little bit further and says, you know, that consciousness is everything and that we bring into existence material stuff by thinking about or observing it or whatever. And here's some quantum physics experiments that are really spooky. It's like, okay, time out. You know, no. quantum physics is weird and spooky. Consciousness is weird and spooky. That doesn't mean they're connected. No. What? That is a classic classic Michael Shermer, because of course he gets it wrong. And that's why I played the first clip with uh, our friend Dean Radin, because experimentally Dean Radin has falsified what Michael Shermer is saying. And Michael Shermer isn't Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer is the stand in here for science, for neuroscience, <laughs> for the paradigm that they're propping up, right? So the yeah. important part is that experimentally, every which way, Dean has falsified that. That this quantum physics mumbo jumbo that Shermer, that Shermer keeps alluding to is the foundation of our modern technology. It's how cell phones work. It's how uh, Elon Musk shoots his satellite internet to everybody. It's at the core of all that. It's not woo-woo. And then when you take it and you apply it like Dean Radin did, you can show that there is the kind of connection between consciousness and this quantum effect of the observer effect and entanglement. That's exactly what he proved in his lab. Let's let, let's let Joe take it away one step further into a uh, pure Luciferian nonsense. Why don't we just say we don't know? Why don't we speculate on the possibility of consciousness being some sort of ethereal thing or something that, exists outside of the Bible. We don't know. We really Okay. The reason that we don't is we're fine to do that, but what we want is something more than that. We want to know in the way that you are speculating, because we are forced to speculate in our life. Our life demands that we speculate. Is there good and bad, or is there not good and bad? Is is it a moral is there a moral imperative or is there not a moral imperative joe can talk about speculating but he's again is misunderstanding he's conflating the real issue you choose with your life whether you believe there's a moral imperative or whether you don't think there's a moral imperative joe rogan michael Shermer, and unfortunately dr dean radin are choosing to not believe that there is a moral imperative. By default, then, 
they are living their life as if there is not a moral imperative. There's all, it's a binary thing. You can't have it in the middle. What did, do you get? Do you get what I'm saying? Well, I don't think anyone would have kind of connected the dots the way you do to get there. <laughs> but how, how else? How else do you connect them? I don't. Re I, re I mean that honestly. I don't understand the. I don't understand the other connection. What would it be? What to understand that there is a moral imperative? So the thing is, you know, are you Luciferian, Gnostic, do what thou wilt, create better than the creator gods, or are you, well, God is really somehow driving this, or, or is it, all I have to do is look to the light and do the right thing. All I have to do is do the right thing and t uh, tell the truth. All I have to do is treat other people the way that I know is the right thing, not the social construct of tr what it is to treat people the right way, not what uh, tr Trudeau says is to treat or Biden is to just know in my heart what the right thing is to do. I mean, this is not complicated. Why are these guys making it complicated? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, with Trudeau, he, uh, he'll say one thing and do another. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh oh, are you frozen? Oh, you're back. You're back. <laughs> I'm trying to give you a chance to talk. I'm, 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 I get excited I and I steal the mic. I know. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I don't. I don't. We're 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 at the we're at the core part of this thing, is yeah. because you're you're not seeing it exactly the way that I do. You're you're making it to me. I don't I don't understand how this is at all complicated. Well, I don't think it's complicated for me because because I've experienced the big love. So I guess, you know, and I just, I see it and like everything. So it's just like, it's there. So what's the problem, <laughs> you know? And, and I know that that's not how it is for everybody else or, or, or at least, you know, for a lot of people, it's not that way. Um, and, and I don't know. And I think people, used to have an easier time connecting with that and you know it's like we're setting up our society to take us away from it so much you know with the computers and everything you know i agree with that part of it but like the interesting thing in our conversation here is like i can see it in your body language and in your eyes is that it's an experiential thing for you it and is yeah. And it just and it just dominates what what you're about, you know. Yeah, and I'm it's approaching, it, and you're and you're approaching it from uh, let's connect the dots and look for evidence. Which and I mean, there's a scientist part of me that's like, yeah, but and and you're right. If the pinwheel spins in the jar, then there's something more <laughs> to us. You know, exactly. There, there is something and more. If to there's, us. that's that's it. And if there's something more to us, then I would suggest that the burden of proof is on those who were always fooled into thinking that there wasn't more to us to put forth the best evidence that some of that more isn't love. Because I yeah. think some of that more is love, is real love, is not the social construct love, but of real undescribable love. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, like I said, it was like my art teacher told me all those years ago. It, it's, it's love is what makes things great. You know, <laughs> you know, love is what, what transforms things and, and makes real art possible. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's one of those things that, I mean, I found in the laboratories, like I know, cause it's, you're right. They try and subtract love when they look at it in the laboratories. And perhaps that's the reason why I found that when I go to a laboratory and get good results, that, that they don't want to see me again. Like, I think that's part of it is that, is that you're right it, on some level, you kind of have to acknowledge that because the, because the wheel's spinning in the jar that that love is a thing. It's funny how all these guys ultimately come back to death because that is what it's all about. That is the ultimate fear that they're trying to escape. That's what they're intellectually trying to wrestle to the ground, that people like you, there's no issue. There's no issue yeah. with, with death. There's no barrier. And for me, from a logical philosophical, non-experiential. There's no barrier to death. I have zero fear of death, zero fear of what comes after. And I do feel compelled to try and be a better person because I do see it as a continuous journey and something that I will be accountable for. Again, this is obvious stuff. How is Dean missing this? How has he done this brilliant science and is failing at the big questions? That is the only, I'll stop there. How, how does that happen? How does that happen with the other scientists you've seen? You know, I, I think right now people are just like with everything that's going on in the world that I think people are just starting to give up on humanity. Like that's, I mean, to me, that's what transhumanism is really about. It's it's giving up on the love. It's giving up on humanity because you just think that it's better to be the Borg, you know? I completely disagree. And I think that comes from the perspective of someone who is in the love. I think the driving motivation is fear and control. Fear of okay. their experience with the ultimate annihilation of who they are, which we are all facing, and a need to somehow in some way take control of that, to create better than the creator gods, to find a way out on the back end. Okay, so you think it's kind of like an arrogance? I think like, it's, no, well, I think it's an arrogance based on fear. And yeah. my supporting data for that would be this has gone on through the ages. It's really not anything particularly unique about us. They've always, all these guys in that camp have always said the same thing. All the magicians have always said the same thing. All the esoteric people, all the uh, Aleister Crowley types, you know, do what thou wilt. Take, you know, make you into you, create better. I keep saying it, create better than the creator gods. I don't think that I see like just when I say that to you, there's just like this blank stare on your face. Like, it's like, why would they want that? Why? Like, how does that make any sense? What, what would I, what would I possibly create that would be better than 
the light, yeah. then God, yeah. then love. What yeah. could I possibly? I don't. You know it. Yeah. There's a blank look on your face, right? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's why this conversation is difficult for me because <laughs> I don't, I don't get get like why they would want that. <laughs> but but you're right. I think a lot of them are certainly going there. Um. You know, like. I mean, you even see it in pop culture. Like, I just want not not that I'm a fan of the latest Star Trek because it kind of sucks, but but you know, like in the the last episode of Discovery this season, where they're you know the aliens are a collective and they don't understand that there's you know many many people as opposed to just one you know one collective person, and you know they're and they're a good alien that that uh, you know. Because they're just one consciousness type of thing, and it's like individuality is okay too, <laughs> you know. Because that's part of it. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't come back from my NDE thinking that I wasn't an individual. I, I mean, I'm part of something bigger, but you know, I, I can also be me. <laughs> and I think all the different expressions of me are good. <laughs> Well, this is one of the things that came up in the interview with uh, Dean, you know, that I think is going to throw a lot of people for a huge loop, and it should, because, again, the art aspect of it is kind of interesting. When people start talking about their art, then they're freed up to talk more freely. And that's what Dean does. And he says, hey, this hive mind thing, this is the way to go. You know, we figured out how to jab you in the arm and change your DNA, and wouldn't it be cool if we could change your DNA so that you were a hive mind rather than this individualistic kind of thing. And you can't uh, kind of a priori say, that's, that's crazy, Dean, no one would ever want that. You can't be a Luddite and say that somebody isn't going to try and do that. Because as soon as we get the technical capability to do it, which we already have, by the way, someone will try and yeah. do it. The, oh, that's what drives the moral imperative. The only thing we can really ask is, is that what I should do right now? Is that the best thing for my soul right now? That is the only question. And Dean doesn't seem to be tied in, tuned into that question. Is that if it happens or not, you can't control that. But do you want to be the guy to do it? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe someday we'll, you know, you know did you ever watch that? Um, oh, that Black Mirror, <laughs> where, you know, there was an episode where there were kind of two societies, one that had, had gone for technology and one that had kind of rejected the technology. And when uh, they showed how just, uh, you know, addictive the technology was, that the teenage girl coming into the society with technology, suddenly she wanted it all. And they used it to turn her against her mother. And it's just such a horrible, like horrible, sad episode, but it's very true. Like is the technology around us, you know, turning us against family and turning us into something else. And I mean, you know, and like, you know, maybe that's why I'm so weird is because I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> well, didn't you say there was uh, some folks in your family were what uh, Mennonite? Uh, what? Weren't they kind of uh, uh, turned their back on technology too, kind of like the Amish? Yeah, not not quite as much. Like Mennonites in Manitoba certainly use technology, but 
you know, there are members of my family who are not vaccinated and for anything like of any kind and, and has, you know, I mean, everyone, my personal belief is everyone should have the choice that to make their own decisions. I mean, my government doesn't share that opinion right now, <laughs> but you know, um, but yeah, you know, and that's kind of a scary thing in the world is that, uh, that people are having their choices taken away. And do you think that it all relates to the conversation we're having here? I think, I think it's part of it. I, I don't, you know, I think all of these things are connected, but, but certainly this idea that, you know, the government doesn't, want there to be individual choices and that they're making choices. See, here's the connection for me. And again, it gets back to the blank stare in your, in your, in your face is that for people who are completely grounded in the idea that there is more and that there's a way to connect with that more. And that way is just to access the light and to continually access the light at any time, whenever you want. They don't want to control other people. They just don't. It's just a different mindset. They're like, well, why, that person is doing wrong. Well, why would I want to control that? Maybe that's part of their journey. You know, it's like when you uh, talk to people in different wisdom traditions who are truly wise, because there are a lot of people in different wisdom traditions that aren't that wise. But like there's some Buddhists who are pretty wise. And when they talk about the worst crimes that they see, whether it's you know, pedophilia or murder or whatever, they talk about it as a way of just, well, they're confused. Not they're bad, they're evil, they need to be thrown on the fires of hell. They say they're confused. And to me, that's such a subtle and important shift. It's the, of course, there's a light. Of course, there's a moral imperative. Of course, we have the ability to choose it. Anyone who doesn't choose it is just a little bit confused on their journey. So when, to me, all these questions are so easily resolvable. Is it okay to force people to take a jab? No, I mean, never, ever, ever. Is it okay to decide that, you know, our species is over and that the next species needs to come and I need to be a part of it by reprogramming everyone's DNA? No, that thought never even enters your mind. If you're open to the light, you just don't, the, the equation doesn't add up that way. Do, do you, uh, do you agree with that? Or do you think that? Oh yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's like, you know, many of the truckers who went to downtown Ottawa are coming back because it was such a loving experience. Like the first three weeks they were there, it was like this giant NDE was enveloping that community. I mean, they were feeding the homeless. They were they were cleaning up the downtown. The crime rate dropped. Like I, I you know, the like it was just this huge sense of community and love. And people who were coming across Canada, one radio producer came in because she wanted to see what was really going on. Because she didn't believe the news. Because obviously being in media, she understands how much fake news there is. And and you know, particularly in Canada, because it's all state-sponsored news now, other than a few independents. And she went there and she posted this video and she says, there's just love here. This is the most love I have ever felt. This is just, it, it's just, everything here is love. And it was like, that's why the government had to 
you know, bring in the cavalry and trample people with horses and and kick veterans who are wearing their medals in the ribs and and breaking bones and and arresting people. Like it was so horrible that they would do that to such a loving group, but from their perspective, they had to stop the love because that's not, they didn't want people thinking that that they could you know be free to live in that light. You know that that's how I really see what happened here, and and they've made sure that people are afraid, like you know by by closing bank accounts and and or freezing bank accounts. I mean they can't do that to organize crime here. But they did it to, you know, hairdressers who gave twenty bucks to the to the truckers convoy, um, and and clearly it was about they had to destroy that love and make people afraid to express that kind of love. That's quite a quite a leap. <laughs> no, it it is just in yeah. the sense of you know. I hear you on one level, on another, on another level, the collective always breaks down for me because there's all kinds of contradictions and counter evidence of, you know, how do you run a country? You know, how do you run a province? We do want safety. We don't want marauding gangs driving through the streets shooting people right so there is a role for uh, for control so that's why to me the collective slips through my fingers what i focus on is from an individual basis it's so clear but the point that i guess i was trying to make all along is that my conclusion from all the things i've learned is number one we're all leading rich spiritual lives yeah. And and that's like that's like controversial or counterintuitive to the Luciferian, uh, to the scientist, <laughs> yeah. to the Michael Shermer. Uh, I don't know if it's counter to what Dean Radin thinks, but we are all leading rich spiritual lives. And when you fully process that, it's like, you know, the guy who was on that horse who trampled that Hawkwom. That was, he's that leading such a, oh. he is leading he is leading a rich spiritual life no he different is. no different than the rich spiritual life than you, that you and I are leading but can you imagine the amount of pain that would have caused you know it, like to come back from doing that to someone else oh my gosh like no I you know I'm not saying that they're that that they don't have souls and and spiritual lives either. I'm just saying that it's just, it's so sad that they, that, you know, they're going to have to work to come back from that now. And, and, but what I was going to say about the truckers is they, they keep coming back to Ottawa now. Like they keep having these little secret reunions because they want to experience that love again. You know, like it's like has an end of year. I, I still like going back to the scene of my car accident. Like I'm drawn back there and those truckers are drawn back here. You know, you know, I get that. I just, that's where the, the scientist in me pulls up short and says, <laughs> I can have my, no, I, I, no, I, I, 
totally appreciate what you're saying. And I value my personal beliefs about that. But I'm very, I kind of draw a line in terms of uh, speculating about what that might might mean for the collective. What I will go to is to say, the cop lives a rich spiritual life. And if I just leave it at there, it opens up a lot of possibilities for me to judge in a different way. I won't say not judge, but judge in a different way in terms of what that experience might mean for him in his spiritual life. But if we don't allow for the fact that everyone is in that spiritual life, then we're not having that conversation. Well, yeah, no, and I agree with you. And, you know, and you're right. People will do like, you know, what's more soul killing than cancel culture, <laughs> you know, like going on the internet and canceling somebody who, for what, I mean, who knows what reasons they're going to cancel somebody for. I'm probably canceled now, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, um, like that experience of going on the internet and anonymous, anonymously attacking somebody um, just because you can, like, like those people have souls too and and soul experiences and you know like you know that they're probably in some way causing themselves pain by doing that later on that they don't realize yet you know and yeah these are all like we all do bad things we all do bad things and i'm certainly no saint and you you have to kind of that that's part of the journey too is how do you come back from that so how do how do you go forward? So you said, how do you come back from that? How do you go forward? If you, if you have this expanded understanding of things like you do, what does that mean in terms of how you go forward in your life? I mean, what are, what is driving you in terms of that understanding that deeper spiritual truth as it, and that intersection with that deeper spiritual truth and the connections of being the stranger things gal? Well, I guess the reason I said come back is that, you know, when you're in that NDE, you you kind of see who you are. And and when you're here, it's like you kind of move away from that. And and it's like, you know, some things will take you away from it and some things will bring you back to it. So that when I'm saying, you know, how do we come back from it? It's like, you know, you want to get back to yourself, like that that love at the core of yourself that you're trying to find yourself again. Um, So really, I mean, it's not, you know, like when you say moving forward, you're like going forward in time, but again, as an end of year, you'd kind of have to say, well, yeah, time is kind of a a social construct. (laughs) Time time is a social construct, yes. So... Are we gonna are we gonna get that book published or not? Oh, probably, yeah. <laughs> well, you've been you've been so awesome and super, and I so appreciate you know all the conversations I've had with you and all the email exchanges I've had with you. And again, I don't know if uh, you know how people will process some of this stuff. And with your permission, I'll edit it into. Uh, yeah, I, I don't envy your editing <laughs> work ahead. <laughs> Thanks again to Shirley Black for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I tee up from this interview 
is the so what question. So you didn't know psychokinesis was real, but now you do. You weren't convinced that near-death experiences were really all that, but now you are. So what? Let's say you're a military intelligence guy and you're tasked with defending my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Well, I kind of do want you to do that. So let's say you come to me and you say, hey, I need a little leeway with this MK Ultra stuff if I'm really going to do my job. What do I say? Am I okay with that? Are you okay with that? Let me know. Let me hear your thoughts. Lots more to come. Stay with me. Until next time, take care and bye for now.